You are listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church in Rainbow City, Alabama. More information about our church can be found online at www.12th.co. Good morning, faith family. Good morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. You heard me, Old Testament. Good stuff, right? Glad you're okay, Justin. We've been, uh, this is the second week, so we've been, we have one week in this new series, Prone to Wonder, and um, as I was working through this series with our staff, uh, it was clear that, uh, I, I love this, I, I love it when I am working alongside other Christians and that they have ideas that are better than me. And I love it even more when we pray over those things together and even separately and come back together and it seems to solidify even more through the Lord's presence and pushing on us individually and corporately together. And that's what happens when we're working on these sermon series. Uh, if you ever think this is because of anything I do, then you're sadly mistaken. Our staff work together to develop our series and where we're headed, and we do that under the leading of the Holy Spirit uh, together. And then when it's delivered, if there's anything good, as I like to say, and not King James Version, it's a little more not as good to say, but in the ESV Version, if God can speak through a donkey, he can talk through me, Right? And uh, that's exactly what's going to happen this morning. God is going to speak to you in some way this morning because your word, his word is going to be open. And your way is going to be made known in some area of your life. Because he loves you too much to bring you here and leave you the same way as when you first walked in the door. He wants you to hear his word. That's why he has set your steps one in front of the other. That's why you've desired to come here working together in that. God has brought you to this place. And he wants you to look more like Jesus when you leave than when you first walked in. And he's going to do some of that working in you today. He is powerful enough to do that. I pray, and I'm going to pray for us in a minute, that we'd be open to that that we would listen to it, that our hearts would be open, that God would illumine our understanding, and that we would then walk in obedience in that way. We're going to look at a story in the Exodus story that uh, I must say when I read it, it's pretty overwhelming. It's uh, picking up in the story, just in case you're not familiar with Exodus, God's people had gone to Egypt to get some food in a time of famine, and God had provided for them, that's a whole other story, and then they're there for a while, or a couple of generations, and it becomes that they're not just there as guests, but they become slaves to Egypt. And Pharaoh doesn't want to let them go, but God sends Moses to bring a message to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And he gives him ten opportunities, worsening the consequences as time goes on until Pharaoh finally relents and lets the people go, but then chases them down to get them back. And God brings the hurt on Pharaoh and his army and kills them all as he parts the sea. And the Israelites pass through on dry ground. And then as the Pharaoh and, and his army pass through behind him, God brings the water back over them and totally frees Israel from their captors. And then they sing about it and they praise him for it. And then they start grumbling almost immediately because they don't have any food. And he brings food out of the sky. And then they complain because it's the same thing all the time. It's just like what normal 
folks do, right? We find something to complain about. And these guys are doing that over and over and over again. And God brings in, in Exodus 20, what we know as the Ten Commandments, the rules, the basics. And then he brings a lot of other secondary rules and regulations, ceremonial law, moral law, all these kind of things together. And then uh, the people commit to that. And then Moses shows up in chapter 24 to go up on the Mount Sinai, instructed by the Lord. He brings some people with him to go up part way on that. And he goes up and he's gone for a long time. It says about 40 days and 40 nights. We're not sure when this part of the story happens, what we're about to read, but we know it happens in that time frame. If you remember, when they got to Mount Sinai and God's presence was on the mountain, the people were so scared they were told not to even touch the mountain. And they were so scared that they were shaking in their boots, per se. But now we see a different story just a few days later, and I think we can learn a lot from this story. Let me ask the Lord to open our hearts and our minds, and then we'll dive right into chapter 32 of Exodus. Father, we need you. We need your goodness. We need your kindness. We need your mercy and grace. We need you to lead us and open our hearts and minds and shape us and change us, that we might love you more because you first loved us, and we might make much of you because you deserve to be glorified and praised. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there's a lot here, so I'm going to read, and I can talk quickly if you don't know me yet, so I'm going to read rather quickly all the way through, and then we're going to kind of hit some highlights. Your job is to go back and reread this and make this your homework. There's just too much here to unpack, and if I don't go fast, I, I, will, not, I, I will stop and try to unpack everything, okay? So we're going to try not to do that. I will pause a couple of times through this, but let's just let the water of the, of the Word wash over us this morning. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, who, by the way, is Moses' brother. It's also the guy he left in charge. This is the guy who's the chief of the priests. Okay? They gathered themselves together and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they, sh- and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, transfer, scene two, top of the mountain. The Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them, and they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. He says, I'm going to tear them apart and I'm going to make a great nation out of you like I said I was going to do out of Abraham. I'm going to fulfill Abraham's covenant I made with him, but I'm going to do it through you and not through the nation that exists now. But Moses, verse 11, implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you 
you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all the land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you've brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people." that they are set on evil? For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, this is my favorite part, by the way, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, by the way, that term broken loose or meant to break loose is a word play using some same kind of terminology that was used in Genesis when Adam and Eve broke loose and they were naked. And they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. It's a word play there. He said, for when, when Moses saw the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision or mockery of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Ain't that a story? I mean, it looks like God's pretty serious about a few things. I think that he is so serious about the sin of idolatry. And I think we... If you've been in church any length of time, you probably know that. If you're a Christian, you even believe that. But I think that we don't really understand what idolatry looks like for us. I think that idolatry itself is consistently, throughout Scripture, the greatest threat to our souls. Without a doubt. Idolatry, I believe, is the greatest threat to our souls. And we often speak of pride as the base sin of our flesh. Yet we do not understand that pride is at its root always, almost always, I might even say always tied at its root to the sin of idolatry. Here's a few ways in which we see it in our own lives. We want things to be done my way. My way 
is the best way. We believe we know what is best. We think we have the best answers. We believe we can figure it all out if we just work hard enough. Maybe pair up with a few other folks that we can work hard with. That's the danger we have with even working on sermon series. We think we can come up with some good stuff, but it may not be what the Lord wants, just because it's what we think is good. We believe we can figure it all out. We believe everyone should agree with our assessment. You may think, well, I don't agree with your assessment. No, but you agree with your assessment. You always agree with your assessment. Right? But the Christian life is not about doing things in the way we believe is best. That's not what the Christian life is about. And it's also not about figuring out the best option and then deciding the right path based off our logic or our ability to be intellectually savvy. Christianity is about being in relationship with God. It's that simple. It is that complicated. Christianity is about surrendering our will to the will of the Lord. It's about seeking our joy and satisfaction in Jesus over and above everything else. And that's very complicated because we're complicated and because our sin nature is very good at leading us towards sin. So how can we guard against this sin of idolatry? I'm glad you asked. The Bible's going to give us a few things here. I'm not going to unpack everything, and I'm not going to point to everything. We, just do, we do not have time today to do that. But you're to go home and double-check that what I'm saying is true. And if it's not, according to Scripture, disregard it. But if it's there, you have to deal with it. And I hope that you will invite it into your life. So how do we guard against the sin of idolatry? Well, the first thing is it starts with realizing the depth of our sinfulness. I've got a few things that will back this up for us. As my favorite cartoon growing up said, knowing is half the battle. So realizing how sinful we are is the first step. We don't like to think about that too much. But notice this, in Exodus 20, verse 1 through 6, if you were to turn over just a few pages, you'd hear this. At the very beginning of these given commandments, the Ten Commandments, it says, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the sun. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In other words, don't love anything above me and don't make anything into an image that you would worship. They got this, and just a few days later, here they are doing it. And we'll have to think, those crazy Israelites, they're doing it again, messing it up, not obeying. If they could just get it through their thick skulls. But I think that we're the ones who need to recognize how often we tend to fashion God into our own image. Right? We think that since I have an idea, it must be what God would have as an idea. We may not think that through all the way, but we're pretty sure that's the way it works because that's how we view it oftentimes. We need to recognize how easy it is to actually fashion God's image into our image. Look at verse 1 of chapter 32. Just give a little picture. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. He's only been gone a few days. He hasn't come back down. 
Peter had the other people with him. And they, they're throwing it to the wind and saying, I've got to have something in front of me. We are way more subtle than that, but we do the same thing. We get our eyes off Jesus for just a few moments when we begin to be focused on self so much so that when we make a decision or we think something through or we think about other people, it's through the lens of who is our God in that moment, which is most often our own self. Look at verses 2 through 6. In these, we need to recognize how easy it is to cloak our own idolatry in the clothing of our religion. Look what happens in verses 2 through 6. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, I'm not real sure on the translation here because the word translated at the beginning here of God's, little g, is actually the word Elohim, which can be translated in the plural, can be translated in singular. It's just Elohim's always in this plural state. And so it could be that that word is singular, God. We're not sure. Commentators argue about that. But if it's plural, he now points to, Aaron points to, that we are tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Truly declaring, this is for Yahweh. You see what just happened? These gods we just made are now representing the God that we know that we're supposed to worship, Yahweh. When he saw this, he built an altar before it, made a proclamation, said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, and they offered burnt offerings, just like they had been offering to Yahweh, and brought peace offerings to this false god, just like they have been bringing it to Yahweh. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Look, we cloak our idolatry, even subconsciously, in the skin of our religion. A.W. Tozer said it really well when he said, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. You've probably heard me quote that before. The reason that's so important is because we don't recognize that what we're thinking about when we think about God defines the God we worship. And if it doesn't equal the God of Scripture in every way, it's some level of idolatry. And let me just clue us in, if you haven't already figured this out on your own. All of us have something a little off. Not until we are glorified and sin is removed and we're in the presence of God will we worship Him the way He deserves to be worshipped. And we are really good at tricking ourselves. Most of us in here have ideas about God. I say every one of us has an errant idea, an erroneous idea about God in our mind at some point as we're worshiping that's a little bit off, either because of a moment in our lives, an event, something we think about God, or just theologically it's a little bit off. And all of us at some level need to be shaped more and more in our understanding of God so we worship Him rightly. All of us need to be relieved from our sin of idolatry continually. And notice what happens later on. Do you remember what happened? We, we joked about it a little bit, but it's not funny, but it is, right? Verse 21 through 24, when Aaron is confronted by Moses, Moses said to him, what did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord, of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they're set on evil. You're like, you know them? Look what they're doing. They're set on evil. 
For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we know not what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. Before we get into that last statement, which is hilarious and sad and scary, those first few verses show us that we tend to place blame on external forces instead of blaming our own idolatrous hearts. The way I hear about it the most down home in the south here is that the devil made me do it. The devil's tempted me to do it. Let me just say the devil is not omnipresent. He is not like God. He's in one place at a time. And you may be super important, but I don't know if any of us in this room are as important as some other people that might need his attention in the evil schemes. You know what I'm saying? So you might have a demon that's at your side, working against you. But let me tell you that you don't need a demon to be a sinner. You and I are leaning into sin all the time because we're sinners by nature. Let us not blame external forces or blame even other people for our own sins. Happens in my house often. One of my children will get in trouble and their immediate response is, well, so-and-so did it. Or so-and-so did it first. Or they brought it to me. I'm like, that doesn't change anything. Right? Does that absolve us? It doesn't. But that's how our minds work. We are so convinced that if I say that out loud, that I'm not responsible. And look how easy we lie to ourselves. Let anyone, that's what I told them, let anyone who, who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. I don't, I don't even know if, hear me right. Maybe you've never done this before, or you just don't realize it. So spouses, don't nudge, okay? Don't nudge. Just listen. Could it be that sometimes we tell ourselves something so many times that we actually believe it even when it's not true? You ever done that? Especially when you have to look at self and you may not like what you see if that's not true. You know what I mean? Look what happens here. We need to recognize how easily we lie to ourselves. Aaron just lied to everybody else and even to himself. It happens all the time. But I need you to remember something really important. This is part of the good news. We never, we never, we never are too far gone for Jesus. He's always able to bring us home. No matter how far you've strayed, no matter how many times you've lied about it, no matter how many times you've blamed other people, no matter how many times you've fashioned God into your own image, or no matter how many times that you have, you have cloaked your false religion into the, the picture of religion so people just don't recognize what's going on in your life, you're never too far gone. Look, none of you have probably built a calf out of gold and worshiped and bowed down to it. It could be a little bit more outwardly worse, right? But it's all the same on the inside, and none of us are too far gone for Jesus. He can bring anybody home. So once you understand these things, you need to understand this. This is kind of second. You need to understand how much God hates idolatry. Look at verses 7 and ten, seven through 10. I know this is not the fun part. We're getting to the fun part. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who you brought up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people or stubborn 
people, is a prideful people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. That's about the moment I would have stepped out of the way. Moses is a better man than I. And he stepped in the way. Before we get to that part, look at this. Understand how much he hates idolatry. God's holiness demands that he hates idolatry. If God is the most beautiful, the most majestic, the most glorious being in existence, and he is. If he is the most wonderful, the most loving, the most just, and he is. If he's all those things, then he deserves to be held at the highest level of praise and honor and glory. And if anything else is placed above him in the lives of anything or anyone he's created, immediately he should destroy that or punish that and bring recompense, wrath. That's what should happen because he alone deserves the glory. It is not just if he does not get the utmost glory. And so then his character would demand that those things happen. When you put it in the perspective of God, it doesn't sound too wrong, does it? He looks at people and says, I'm going to destroy them, I'm going to consume them, and I'm just going to use you, Moses. I'm going to bring it all back up through you. Because that's what they deserve. The problem is that's what we deserve. His holiness demands that he hate idolatry. He hates it when we worship a vision of God that looks more like us than it does the God of the Bible. He hates that. And the payment for that idolatry is death. Look at verse 10 again. We've got to see it. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. In fact... He goes on later on, and we see that he's talking about Moses says, blot my name out of the book. What he means is not what we're thinking about in Revelation. We're not talking about the same book there, most likely. We're talking about the book of life, those who are living. He says, kill me instead of killing these people. And God says, I'm still going to take their names out of the book. Death must come to those who commit idolatry. That's a real problem for us. The good news is none of us are ever too gone for Jesus not to bring us home. And so Jesus, who came to live the perfect life we could not live, who never, ever committed idolatry, knowing fully who God his Father is, and loved him rightly in every step of the way, and then died the death we deserve under the full wrath that we should receive for all eternity, has made the way possible for us so that we can be brought into the family of God, not being condemned by God, which is what should happen, but he took that upon himself. Moses wanted to step in the gap, but Jesus is the only one who could because Moses is not a worthy sacrifice. Moses isn't worth all the people he would do that for. Moses isn't a perfect sacrifice because he's blemished. He's sinful too. He messes up too. But Jesus is not. Jesus is fully man, but he's fully God. He's the God-man. And so therefore, he's enough. He's sufficient. And he paid the price in full on the cross in his death so that we could be brought into the family of God. That's the good news. No matter how far away you are, you're never too far away for Jesus. None of these people are too far away from the grace of God in Jesus. None of us are too far away. That's good news. Amen? That is good news. That is good news. We've got to remember how much he hates idolatry and how easy we lean into it and how easy we trick ourselves to thinking we're not doing it so that we can actually understand that only Jesus can actually overcome our idolatry. You and I can't do it on our own. You and I can't muster up enough strength and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just overcome. It ain't going to happen because our hearts are so wicked and deceitful is what the scriptures tell us. 
So what we have to understand is that while Moses was great, Jesus is greater than Moses. While Moses did some really good things, Jesus did much better things. See, Jesus, Moses tried to, to intercede in verses 11 through 14 on behalf of the Israelites, and he did. He prayed for them. He tried to put himself in the place. But Jesus is constantly interceding on our behalf before the Father. We see it in 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know what? If you've sinned, you deserve condemnation. But instead, Jesus is advocating for you. And because he paid the price of that sin for you, you can have eternal life with him and forgive forgiveness for all your sins, and he's advocating with the Father. Nope, 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 not Father, you can't. That one, no, don't worry about that. I took care of that one already. Help that guy out. Help that woman out. Help my sister out. Help my brother out. I paid for those sins on the cross. You remember that, Father? And the Father's, yes, I remember that. I, the, their sins are as far from me as the east is from the west. Romans eight thirty four. who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It may not sound like a big deal. That's a huge deal. The one who came to this earth and should have been magnified was destroyed on a cross in our place by our sins that he did not deserve under the wrath that we should incur even now. And Jesus paid it all for us on the cross. And while we were his enemies, he loved us. And now he intercedes for us even though we still sin against him. That's a gloriously good servant who should be the king in our lives, who's still serving us, a king serving us, the Savior serving us. And although Moses has tried to atone for us, Jesus actually did it by dying on the cross. He paid that price that Moses couldn't do that we see in verses 30 through 32. It says, the next day Moses said to the people, you've sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. But we know he goes up and he's not able to make atonement. You see, Jesus has done what Moses couldn't dream of doing. Everything in the Bible is pointing to Jesus. You recognize that? If everything in the Bible, at least, okay, I'm not going to get into old earth, short earth, all that stuff. At least 6,000 years worth of Bible here, okay? At least, minimum. If you, if you believe that the scriptures are true, you have to understand that everything in the Bible points to Jesus. He tells the Pharisees, you think that you're going to find eternal life in the scriptures, but you missed the point. They're all about me, he says. And in that, if everything in there is about him and every person in there is somehow meant to point to Jesus, and Moses is doing that now, how are our lives meant to be any different, brothers and sisters? You see? And we are never going to be able to do well enough to point to Jesus. What's pretty amazing is that even in the failure of Moses to atone for the people, it points to the greater Jesus who actually does bring atonement. Even in our failures to live out our lives the way we should, it points to the greater Jesus who is able to live out those things for us and bring us home. And they were never too far. Moses sought atonement for his people, but Jesus has secured atonement for his people. That's good. It's good news. Moses could not overcome the sins of his people, but Jesus overcame the sins of all of us on the cross. Moses could not overpower the sinfulness within the hearts of his people. He could not overpower the sin of idolatry and the desires for idolatry in his people. But Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit if we've repented and believed in him, which gives us more power than we can imagine in our fight for holiness and our fight against idolatry. 
Jesus is enough to overcome idolatry. And by the way, he's all you got. Thankfully, he's all you need. Period. You are enough, Lord. You are enough, Lord. So praise the name of Jesus. Though I'm prone to wander, Jesus can bring me home. Though I'm prone to leave the God I love, Jesus consistently chases me down, just like he does you. You can't outrun his grace and his mercy. Because you're never too far gone for Jesus. Let me give you a few things in closing real quick. Four easy little steps to help make sure that you can work more proactively in this daily fight. Knowing all these truths is really helpful, but here's some things to actually do. Number one, focus more on God's will for your life. In other words, don't be trying to figure out what the next best move is. Think more about what God's plan is for you and ask him to reveal that to you. Okay? And I, don't mean, I don't mean this. I don't mean don't go to work tomorrow unless God tells you to go. I'm not talking about that. Okay? I, I don't mean don't brush your teeth because you hate doing that unless God says brush your teeth. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is, is that before you make big decisions in your life that you think you've got figured out because you made the pros and the cons, I love pros and cons lists, before you make the big decisions in your life, make sure you go to the Lord and that you hear from him above the pros and cons. It's not wrong to make pros and cons and figure that kind of stuff out, but ultimately it doesn't matter what that says if God tells you to do the opposite. Pray fast, seek him. Seek the wise counsel of those who love Jesus that you think in your mind a little more than you do, a little longer than you have. Try to discern God's will for your life and focus on that. Because when we don't do that, we end up thinking so highly of self that we think we've got it figured out. And then we give God the credit for it, good or bad. And that's the backwards way of doing this. Secondly, remain steadfast in his will. Being patient and waiting for the Lord. Look, these people, they messed it up. You know why they messed it up in here? Because they got tired of waiting around for God to do something. They got tired of waiting around for Moses to come back off the mountain and to tell them what to do. They felt like, man, I've waited long enough. It's time for me to take action in my own way. And I'm telling you that usually when we do that, it is not going to end well for us. It sure didn't for them here. If God tells you to take a trajectory, you keep that trajectory until he tells you to take a left or a right or turn around. That's, that's the way it needs to be for us. Look, the scriptures, as we pour over these, they tell us, like, go preach the gospel. Go speak about the gospel, about Jesus to other people. So you don't have to wait for God to say, hey, go talk to that person about Jesus. He's already told us to do it. I'm not talking about those kind of things. I'm not saying that God's telling you, like, well, he didn't tell me not to watch that stuff on that TV show. If the Bible tells you to be holy and that leads you not to be holy, then you don't do it. It's already, he's already told you. This has already been revealed to us. Walk in the truth of that. But be steadfast in his direction for you until he gives you a new direction. Thirdly, be obedient to his word above all, especially above being true to thine own self. Remember that phrase? Being true to self? Bad news. Bad idea. Here's why. You can't love yourself as much as God loves you. You think you love yourself a lot, God loves you more, and he wants even greater things for you. 
He wants you to be the best you he made you to be. He knows you because he made you. He knows you better than you know yourself. So don't be true to your own self. Be true to the Lord. Be obedient to him. Walk in his ways. Do whatever he says to do. Right here is the first and foremost. This is, this is the guardrails. Be true to him. True to his word. And lastly, always stand with the Lord above all else. Look at verses 25 through 29. This has been pretty hardcore stuff right here. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So those guys had to be obedient to the point at the cost of their own son. But now we don't have to worry about that. I'm not going to call you to get up and put a sword on your side and take anybody out. That's not what's going to happen. You know why? Because Jesus was the son who was crucified and died for us all. So he's paid the price already for our sins. So that kind of stuff's not going to happen. But when the Lord tells you to stand and do something with him, you better say yes and amen. That's the only answer we have. And one of the clues that you may not be on the right side of this is if he's nudging you to do something and you say, not yet, wait a minute, no, that can't be right because that goes against what I know must be the answer here. No, stand with the Lord, whatever it is. And notice that just the Levites did it. They were the minority, by the way. You may not be surrounded by everybody else walking with you, whatever he calls you to. He may tell you to go to Zimbabwe. Yes, Lord, and amen. He may tell you to change your job. Yes, Lord, and amen. Take a little time, fast, pray, seek it out. Lord, is this really you? Is this what you want? And when he confirms it, yes and amen. Stand with the Lord. Whether it's popular, it doesn't matter. It means are you obedient or not for his glory? That's what's at stake. And that's what these guys did. And you may be called, don't be, don't be fooled, you may be called to make some really hard decisions, but you better make sure it's because the Lord's telling you to do it if they're a hard decision, and not just because you figured it out. Because there is no security in that blanket. You don't want to be in a place where it gets really hard after that decision, and you go, was that the right thing to do? Man, if you've already sought the Lord, and he's made it so clear to you, that it makes it really easy to stand in that place. And remember that you are never too far gone for Jesus. No matter how bad it gets, it's never too much for Jesus. No matter how far away it's never too much for Jesus. Today you might be hearing this news for the first time. And I'm telling you, no matter what you've done, no matter who you've upset, no matter what you did even before you walked in this place, no matter what sin you brought with you, none of it makes you too far gone for Jesus to save you. Jesus can bring salvation even right now. And if you're his, but you've been wandering, we're prone to wander. Today's the day of redemption for you to be washed again. Not washed from your sins the first time, but just washed and renewed by hope in the gospel of Jesus. Father, we need your kingdom work to work in us. We need your glory. We need your kindness. We need your goodness. And Lord, most of all, we need Jesus. Help us to love Jesus because he first loved us. Help us to make much of you because you've made so much of us in giving us Jesus. And help us to believe the truth that we are never too far gone for you, Lord. Help us to stand in your 
way, to do what you want us to do, to be obedient to you, whatever the cost. For Lord, we know our hearts are prone to wander, to worship other things. As one of the reformers said, that our hearts are factories for idols. So Lord, help us. Help us not to believe in idols, but to believe in the one true God, you, Father. Shave off the bits and pieces that need to be removed so we're not worshiping an idol, but worshiping you. Because we want to love you. Because you've loved us so much and so well in Jesus. We ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church. Feel free to share this with anyone you meet, and we pray that this sermon helps you to be more like Jesus as 12th Street seeks to make apprentices of Jesus by being a family for families.